Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham, coming at you today nearly live in Ottawa, Ontario, where we just had Canada Day. And of course, today is the 4th of July, Independence Day for our American friends. And we figured what a better time to invite our friend Paul Cahan back to the show because he has written another book, The Presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, Preserving the Civil War's Legacy. And he is joining us from Philadelphia, I presume, Paul. Yes, that's correct. So welcome back to the show. Thank you. And happy Independence Day to you. Thank you very much. As soon as we're done here, I'm heading out to my brother-in-law's and uh, enjoying the traditional barbecue and... uh fireworks display so i'm looking forward to it right eating and blowing stuff up the great american tradition so that's well, a, you know does it get any better than that it, it really doesn't and, and i hope the weather's better for you here in uh ontario at least a scorcher for canada today so uh hopefully it's it's a little more comfortable where you are today yeah, for independence right. day so let's talk about the book and yeah i say this to you pretty much every time we talk now is that you embarrass the rest of us by just being so productive. Uh, this is the third time you've been on the show within two and a half years or three years or something uh, with another book. So this one is about Ulysses S. Grant. But how do you keep doing this, Paul? <laughs> uh, I don't sleep a whole lot, and I have a very forgiving partner. Which is key, of, of course. And this one is a little different from your other two that we've talked about before, I mean, you, you've obviously, everything that we've talked about has been 19th century, but, you know, amiable scoundrel, scoundrel it was pre-Civil War, of course, and, and now you're looking at the legacy of Ulysses S. Grant, who's one of these figures that is very prominent in the United States, but someone who, as we'll talk about, isn't really that well-known outside of maybe the military context. So where does this idea for a book about his presidency come from? So that's a really interesting question. Uh, the answer goes back to my previous book, uh, the biography of uh, Lincoln's first Secretary of War, Simon Cameron, titled "Amiable Scoundrel." After uh, Cameron leaves Grant, excuse me, after Cameron leaves Lincoln's cabinet, he ends up being reelected to the Senate and serving for the in the Senate for the entirety of Grant's presidency, during which he ascends to uh, the chairmanship of the Council, uh, the, the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations where he works, if not hand in glove, then certainly very closely with the administration in implementing Grant's foreign policy. And in thinking about that and in thinking about the role he played, I really wanted a short, accessible narrative history of the Grant administration to sort of give some context to Cameron's activities. And unfortunately, there was no such book. Um, the biographies of Grant that exist, all of them very fine, nevertheless give short shrift to Grant's presidency. And so as a result, as I was writing the book, uh, I felt somewhat handicapped. And I sort of tucked it away in the back of my head that, you know, there'd be a really important area of study uh, to create a narrative history of Grant's presidency. And so ultimately, for my sixth book, that's what I did. And how much is that lack of work on his presidency uh, a part of the united states's overall fascination with the civil war because you know I, I like to joke that a new book about the civil war comes out every 10 minutes and for as much as it's a joke sometimes it feels true 
you know, like on late night talk shows, whenever they bring out an author, it seems as though it's a book about the Civil War. So how much is that romanticism of the Civil War influenced the historiography of Grant being so heavily focused on the the military aspect? Well, you know, that, and that, too, is a really interesting question. Uh, on the one hand, it's undeniable that the Civil War is the focus of a lot of scholarship. And in fact, um, you know, some Civil War roundtables that I've contacted about speaking to them have turned me down on the basis of the idea that a book about Grant's presidency is not strictly speaking about the war. You know, I take, sort of take the longer view that if war is politics by other means, then Grant's presidency is the war by political means, because his presidency is mostly about consolidating and protecting uh, what was won on the battlefield during the war. That being said, you know, Grant himself tended to downplay the war. You know, he writes what is really the benchmark of presidential memoirs uh, shortly before his death. And the irony is that book stops in 1865. Uh, he doesn't talk about his presidency. He doesn't talk about his world tour uh, after leaving the presidency. It's almost as if his life ended at Appomattox. And so, you know, Grant is partially responsible, I think, for this sort of scholarly uh, attempt to, you know, to ignore or diminish his presidency. And certainly because he was president during Reconstruction, you know, there's this whole anti-Reconstruction impulse that runs through the historiography of the 19th century during the late 19th century and then, you know, really the first, I would say, two-thirds of the 20th century. And, you know, as a result, it's only been relatively recently that we've begun to look back on Reconstruction as something other than an utter failure. Uh, and all of those things, I think, sort of came together to sort of diminish uh, Grant's presidency in the eyes of scholars and the general public. Yeah, because it seems to me that with Grant, his presidency is sort of almost an extension of the Civil War or, or something like people don't really pay that much attention to it because, you know, the Civil War is such a benchmark event in American history and Reconstruction is so contentious and almost stretches beyond his years in a way that sort of the resolution of the way in which Reconstruction is going to ultimately play out seems to to sort of bypass him and he's almost treated in the the historiography that I've read and certainly if you pick up textbooks from even you know 10 years ago they don't really talk about his presidency he's sort of a minor figure outside of the war and it, it strikes me then as maybe not so much a a repudiation of his presidency but more so just the way in which reconstruction has been written about and understood or in the case of of me and I think some of the textbooks and frankly not understood. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that if you think about, you know, sort of the one book on reconstruction, it's it's Eric Foner's History of Reconstruction. Yeah. Um and that takes a very state-based narrative. It it tends to ignore um what's going on on the federal level and he sort of depicts Grant as almost a non-entity. Uh, in a lot of ways. And I think that even for someone who didn't see Reconstruction as a flawed experiment or as an utter failure, 
he nevertheless creates a template for thinking about reconstruction as sort of you know not really requiring the president on some level as, as what happened in the states not what was happening in washington and i think that there's some value to that approach but you know what i what i think i argue in the presidency of ulysses s grant is also you know it's important to look at what was going on in washington and look at the structural and political constraints on Grant as president. Hmm. And, you know, to get a better sense of how policy not only got made, but was also implemented from Washington. So, you know, I think that there's a necessary corrective to the story that involves understanding Grant's presidency um, on its own terms. Yeah, absolutely. Which is interesting in that, you know, so much of the war and so much of the arguments about the war since have been about states versus federal rights and who is responsible for what. And you're right in that reconstruction is very much viewed on a state level and a state by state level. So let's get into this a little bit with, with Grant coming out of the war. He's be, he becomes the president. He's elected president. What is his principal policy or platform that he's running on? What what? gets him elected other than the notoriety of being a, a major military figure coming out of the Civil War. Well, and that is actually what gets him elected. Right. <laughs> it's, important to, you know, it's important to understand the political context. You know, the Republican Party is relatively young at this point. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's less than two decades old. And it's a very loosely bound together coalition of people um, opposed to slavery and on a spectrum, you know, those who were opposed to slavery but didn't believe that Congress could really do anything to about it to flat out abolitionists who demanded immediate emancipation. And the way the, the end of the war faces the Republicans with an identity crisis. You know, a lot of them are saying, okay, well, we got what we wanted. Is there really room at the table for a Republican Party? Is there a necessity for a Republican Party? Or can we go back to being Democrats and Whigs? And it's really antipathy toward Andrew Johnson that in some ways gives the party a second lease on life. It sort of provides them with an enemy that they can all rally around and ultimately undoing um, a lot of Johnson's policies and ensuring that the South doesn't weasel out of um, you know, the, the, uh, you know, what happened on the battlefield during the war really gives the Republicans a second lease on life. And so when they begin casting about for a candidate, they're essentially looking for someone who's got enough popularity that he can attract votes, but at the same time, he's inoffensive to the various factions of the party. And no one fits that bill better than Ulysses S. Grant, who had made an enemy out of Johnson, who as um, you know, general of the army had been responsible for implementing reconstruction policy during Johnson's presidency and who ultimately is the most popular guy in America at this point. And so as a result, they sort of choose him from a strategic perspective. And his campaign is summed up in, in the campaign slogan, let us have peace. That's really um, Grant's goal going into the presidency in the beginning of 1869. And, you know, I think somewhat foolishly, he thinks that he's going to be able to be president without dealing with politics, that on some level he's going to be above it all. And, you know, there have been plenty of presidents who have gone into the presidency thinking that, 
only to have you know the cold water of reality thrown on them. And Grant's first year in office is very frustrating because he doesn't quite know the rules of the game and how it works. And it's only when he sort of gets with the program uh, in 1870 that things really begin happening for him. And he's able to exert um, control beyond, you know, executive prerogatives. But what sort of things did he want, want going into it? Like, I get that it would take some time to figure out the, the actual machinations of the government and how things work. I mean, you could make a parallel to what's happening now in terms of there being a steep learning curve and understanding how to actually get things done within the government. But in Grant's case, it's one thing for there to be this divide within the party and people settle on him as a candidate. But at some point, he would have to have ideas and have some sort of motivation to do this as opposed to just being, well, there's no one else who everyone can agree on, so I'll do it. Because in that sense, he would almost be like a figurehead. And from everything I know about Ulysses S. Grant, he wouldn't want that. Like, sort of a uh, Obviously, if you're going to be a major military figure, there's sort of a stubbornness to you, right, that you're... In, in in control, you know what's going on, and you have power. So the idea then that he would just sort of be this guy who everyone can agree on and almost the least offensive, to me would go against that idea, and therefore he would have to have some sort of ideology that is underpinning everything he's doing, right? Well, and you know, in the book, I argue that the guide to understanding him, his political identity, is sort of a, a moderate. Whiggishness that he identifies with the Whig Party um, in the 1830s and 40s, and then you know basically um, that leaves a lasting impact on him when he begins thinking about um, what he wants to do as president. And there are several um, definite uh, uh, goals that he has. One is improving U.S. relations with Native Americans. Uh, one is finding an answer to the ongoing uh, challenge of race in the United States. Um, to the degree that he has a well-thought-out platform on uh, money, he's a bit of a gold bug, mm. um, which you know has a faction within the Republican Party. So I, it's not—I don't want to suggest that you know he's he's a total cipher by any stretch of the imagination. But what I do want to suggest is that his primary motivation for running is consolidating and protecting um, the the uh, achievements that uh, the Union Army had won on the battlefield that he believed were being squandered by what he calls the mere politicians hmm. um, who are running things in the the years following the end of the war. So in those years, of course, with Reconstruction... As I mentioned before, one of the more complicated points in American history, and certainly for me, I've taught American history surveys before. I find them difficult to, to do Reconstruction because it is a rather complicated era. So how, for, before we get into actual, like, the, the grant part of it, I think the way it tends to be looked at is North wins the war. They want to get rid of slavery. They run out of money. They let the South do what they want, segregation if I could sort of sum it up right, yeah. in, in a very simplistic way. I think that's the general narrative that people like me who are not specialists have about Reconstruction. Obviously, when I teach about it, I'm a little more 
details about it. But, you know, generally speaking, if, if is that the narrative that permeates? And what is what are the major flaws with that narrative? Um, yeah, you know, I... I I think that like all narratives that's simplistic, but it does have, you know, in this case, it does have a grain of truth. Um, I think that it's important to recognize that going back to the structure of the Republican Party, this was a party that was formed to advocate for an end to slavery. But within that, there are a variety of factions advocating, you know, different approaches, whether it's gradual emancipation, whether it's immediate emancipation, whether it's sort of maintaining the status quo and opposing the expansion of slavery. So right off the bat, you have varying degrees of commitment to abolition. You have varying degrees of commitment to equal rights for for newly freed slaves. Um, and then you have you know, a whole spectrum of opinion on the other issues of the day, whether it's monetary policy, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's reconstruction. Um, and it's important to recognize that Reconstruction means more than just, you know, consolidating the gains of the war or doing something for, you know, freed slaves. It meant a thoroughgoing political, economic, social, cultural transformation of the South because, you know, the critique of slavery was not just, well, you've got this, this, this slave system and everything else is fine. You know, <laughs> you had this slave system that permeated everything else. And so you uproot slavery, but you don't uproot all of the economic, political, cultural things that go along with it. So Reconstruction is, you know, this really big project. You know, we would call it nation building. Hmm. And, you know, if if our experience in the last 30 years has taught us anything is that nation building is incredibly expensive, is incredibly unpredictable. And unless you prep the population that's doing the nation building for the fact that it's going to take years and sometimes decades, you very quickly lose their support. And when, you know, it comes to paying the bills for these things, when it comes to enfranchising African-Americans, when it comes to a long-term military occupation in the South, the North just doesn't have the stomach for it um, in a lot of ways. It's a lot easier to sell the idea of we are going to bring the states back into the Union than it is to say we are going to spend millions of dollars to change every aspect of their social, political, and cultural institutions. And I think that when you do get, I mean, I think that, that white commitment in the North to that was shaky to begin with, and then when you get to the Panic of 1873, the bottom just falls out. In addition, the primary instrument of... Uh, um, affecting those policies is the military and the military leadership by and large makes it clear that it's not committed to that sort of thoroughgoing reconstruction of the south and as a result you have subordinates who um drag their feet implementing policies and are not as zealous as they probably could have been and so as a result you have this policy being set at the top that by the time it filters down to the bottom is not being pursued the way that the president and his administration might have wanted. And that's one of the things that I think is so important in talking about Reconstruction, really anything else, that it's great for people at the top to have policies, to have ideas, but you're right, they have to be implemented in some way. And the thing with slavery, as you mentioned, that it's not just a system of labor 
it's really just this whole way of life that permeates everything. And in some ways, the impact of slavery is still there. If you look at, say, the uh, the wealth divide, racial wealth divide, the, the root of that can be traced back to slavery. So the thought that with Reconstruction, slavery has gone, we'll do some little things, make sure that black people can vote and everything will be great. It's just, it, it doesn't work, especially ideologically with former slave owners. Because if you can have the position that the people who you are enslaving aren't people, right? they're, they're property and they're to be treated as property, how then can you say all of a sudden that they would be equal members of society? That is such a huge shift that, I mean, not to sound sort of fatalistic about it, but you almost have to wait for that generation or two later to be able to implement anything like that. And even for that to work, the the generation that was the slaveholding class can't really influence that next generation on their ideology. You basically just have to wait for them to die. And then maybe you can make some progress. It seems so short-sighted just to think, well, let's put the military down there. And even if the, the policies are implemented as directed, I, I can't imagine it being all that successful. Well, I, you know, and that's, I mean, that's, you know, sort of a counterfactual example, you know. Well, our, yes, it is. And I know, I know counterfactual, we probably shouldn't do that, but I did, I, I did. I, no, I, and I'm, and I'm willing to, to go, you know, far down that rabbit hole and ask those questions, because I think there are important questions, you know, was Reconstruction fated to fail or were there scenarios where it could have succeeded um you know were there scenarios where you know we don't have 160 years of you know racial problems following it right um you know and i think that's a tough question you know the the willingness you know the, the federal government takes a very conservative response under the Lincoln administration to freed slaves. Johnson winds that back even further. And here comes Ulysses S. Grant, where we have a very tepid political commitment to doing this in terms of white northern support. You have uh, individuals in the government, both on the military side and the administrative administration side, who are not necessarily as committed to this or outright hostile to it. And so as a result, you know, I think it's pretty clear that under those circumstances, Reconstruction was going to fail. Had, you know, Grant removed Sherman and put, you know, someone who was a little bit more zealous in command of the army, maybe it would have been a different discussion. But, you know, to do that sort of thoroughgoing nation building, you have to accept that there's going to be violence, that there's going to be a long-term economic political commitment, and that you're just going to be there for a while. And I think that if our experiences in Vietnam and Korea have taught us anything, it's that, you know, U.S. commitment to that sort of thoroughgoing reconstruction tends not to exist. Right. Um, you know, when you consider the fact that where it, it, it has worked out is in a place like Germany, and we're still there yeah. 70 years yeah. later. You know, it, it's hard to imagine the federal government summoning the political and will and economic resources to occupy the South for 70 or 80 years. Yeah, and especially 
constitutionally and sort of the principles of, of states' rights and all that would, would go against it. So what happens then? You, you mentioned the economic collapse in, in 1873, and certainly that is a major turning point in what happens. But is that is it as simple as that where support is already kind of waning, economic collapse, 1873, and people in the North just say no more? There, there are a lot of things contributing to that. You know, there are a lot of, you know, that is one thing that certainly imperils um, the Grand Administration's ability to act. You know, shortly thereafter, the Grand Administration loses control of the House. Democrats take control of the House for the first time since uh, be, before the war. And, you know, they begin investigating the Grand Administration. They begin checkmating the Grand Administration, uh, holding up the purse strings and whatnot. Um, you know, but even the the Republicans in the Senate and, you know, to a lesser extent in the House are less committed, I think, to the sort of radical transformation of the South that um, is going to be required to achieve Reconstruction's ends. You know, the more conservative Republicans, uh, you know, the ones who were more willing to accept the status quo and join the party because they didn't want to see slavery expanded, you know, are kind of saying things like, you know, guys, this is too far. This is too much. Um, you know, we got what we wanted. Slavery is abolished. Let it go. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's important to note that in 1872, Grant doesn't run against a Democrat. He runs for reelection against uh, a group of Republicans who come to be known as the liberal Republicans. And they're essentially what their platform is. We hate Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> so he's got a very divided Republican Party. He's got a restive uh, public in the north. He's got declining economic resources. Uh, you know, Congress is paring back on uh, the you know appropriations to the military, which is the primary vehicle uh, for imposing Reconstruction on the South. So, you know, it's it's a lot of different things. I don't think it's any one thing, um, you know, but certainly when you uh, have the um, collapse of 1873, that puts another nail in the coffin of Reconstruction. But with all those things going on, one of the things that I've, I'm always fascinated that military figures are so prominent in American politics it's waned a little bit, but traditionally to be the president, you had to have some sort of military service, right? If you look at presidents just for the last 200 years, a lot of them, well, the vast majority of them served in the military at some point. And one of the things that I've often wondered is, is if that actually helped protect the presidency from some of the politicking that would take place, that obviously they're politicians and most of them are very good politicians, but that military background to say it's almost, this is what's right. This is what I want to do. I have to play the game a little bit, but honestly, this is what, what I stand for. And I've often wondered if that's the case. And with somebody like Grant, who, as you mentioned before, comes in almost as this not objectionable figure, would he have any strong predisposition to reconstruction in the first place that these things that are going wrong with it including then the collapse make him say okay well i wasn't really into this anyway let's just pull the plug no i think that uh 
I think it's pretty clear that he was committed to the reconstruction of the South. He does have conflicting um, priorities, and that's you know something I discussed in the book at great length. On the one hand, he really wants to have peace. He means it when he says, let us have peace. On the other hand, he's unwilling to buy peace at the cost of giving up uh, battlefield victories and at the cost of ha you know having giving up the victory in the war. And so as a result, you're constantly pulled by two, you know, in some ways, mutually exclusive goals. The goal to put the war behind us and rebuild the nation as quickly as possible, and the goal to consolidate and protect everything that was won on the battlefield. And so as a result, there's almost a sort of schizophrenic approach to policy making. Um, you know, he is willing to, on the one hand, forgive and forget uh, for many former Confederates. On the other hand, he's unwilling to allow them to terrorize African Americans or disenfranchise African Americans or, you know, uh, actively oppose the Republican governments in the South. And so as a result, I think it sort of militates against a comprehensive uh, and coherent policy in dealing with Reconstruction. Is any of that personal, though, for him saying, you know, I, I was involved in this. I did this. My some of my men died doing this. Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. so does that does that then almost sort of take away from any ideological sense of it and, and trying to, quote unquote, do the right thing as opposed to, as you say in the title, preserving the war's legacy? No, I think I, I, I don't think it's personal and I don't think it I mean I do think it's on some level personal Grant is not as I read him ideological hmm. uh, you know certainly not in the sense of a George W. Bush or a Ronald Reagan I mean he doesn't have a, a comprehensive worldview that you know uh, through which he filters the experience you know uh, the data that's coming to him he is very practical and pragmatic um, and again you know that too I think militates against a coherent policy. Um, you know, he doesn't come into the White House with a checklist of, you know, a long platform of things that I want to do. There are some things, but it's not ideological. It's, it is personal. And, you know, he sees the Army as the instrument of achieving these things because it's an institution that he knows and trusts. And so as a result, you know, he tries to make the army the primary driver of his Indian policy, which, you know, causes some problems late in his presidency. Yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about that, because in terms of reconstruction, if, if one of the things with the Civil War, of course, is ending slavery. And obviously that's a good thing to end slavery. But certainly throughout the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th and now 21st century. Indigenous people have not really been treated particularly well. So now here we have Grant, who on the one hand is is fighting the Civil War against slavery, is doing these reconstruction policies, implementing, trying to implement these reconstruction policies that are designed in part to help African Americans. And yet, on the other hand, you have his approach to Indigenous people, Native Americans, that is, is, is just, it's sort of almost non-existent to the point of like just get them out of here so is there like why is there that contrast that he has 
seemingly sympathy for one persecuted group but not for another. Well, I disagree. I think that actually okay. he has a great deal of sympathy for Native Americans. Um, you know, he appoints the first uh, Native American to major office, Eli S. Parker. Um, and, you know, one of his clearly thought-out approaches to policy has to do with Native Americans. He sees the Bureau of Indian Affairs as thoroughly corrupt. Hmm. And so he wants to get rid of Indian agents and replace them with uh, evangelical Christians and Quakers. Uh, he wants to transfer control of Native American affairs to the War Department because he believes that, A, the Army will follow orders, B, it will execute policies in a less self-interested fashion, and C, will be less likely to uh, stir up conflict with the Native Americans because they're going to be the ones who ultimately would have to fight in those conflicts. Right. Um, you know, And we can debate whether or not his approach is is you know positive or negative but i think that again he is committed to toward improving relations with native americans and there are some signal successes i mean he does on some level root out some of the corruption uh in the indian in the bureau of indian affairs he does ultimately um lower the amount of violence um, particularly during his first term. Whether that amounts to a good thing, capital G, capital T, right. is, I think, you know, a, a, an issue for some debate. And, of course, we do have several important conflicts. And ultimately, when, you know, his priorities, in one case, uh, improving Native American relations and, and doing right by the Natives, and, on the other hand, you know, uh, uh, acquiring gold, in order to expand the economy, come into conflict, he chooses gold over Native Americans. And so orders the army into the Black Hills um, and basically forces Native Americans off the land that his administration had promised them. So, you know, on a certain level, you know, I think it's wrong to say that he is unsympathetic to Native Americans. I think it would be more accurate to say that as a president, he's faced by a series of competing priorities and ultimately makes decisions. And we can debate whether those decisions are moral or immoral, correct or incorrect, good policy or bad policy, but I don't think that we can debate whether or not on balance and in a vacuum he does care about Native Americans. Okay, but when it comes push when push comes to shove and he has to make priorities, the prioritization is always that Native Americans are going to come second in two things. Like and, and I mean, that's not necessarily to impugn Grant. That's the way every president has ever done it. But it, it strikes me is that he is, in a sense, working hard on behalf of African-Americans. And yet we have this other group that whenever one, whenever it comes into conflict with another idea or another priority, they're always going to come into in second place. Well, but I would point out that there are also instances where when competing priorities require Grant to put African-Americans in second place. You know, there are times right. he doesn't effectively use the military to protect the rights of African-Americans and Republican office holders in the South, either out of political considerations or out of economic considerations. You know, there are times where um, African-Americans are, you know, end up in the second class status. Uh, in his decision making. And it's one of the most infuriating aspects of Grant's presidency in that there are these inconsistencies 
There mm. is no consistent policy. Right. And Grant, on the one hand, demonstrates what can be done through judicious and aggressive use of federal power in crushing the Ku Klux Klan. He demonstrates the federal government has the ability, has the power, has the tools to achieve these things, but he doesn't consistently do that. And I think that that's one of those moments where, you know, you sit back and say, you know, that's where you sort of say, you know, where you really wonder what might have been if right. he had been more consistent in his application of force. Right. But there are all kinds of political considerations and policy considerations and, you know, economic considerations that militate against the use of power in every instance. And so I think that, you know, when we begin to think about not just Grant's presidency, but presidencies in general, what we need to do is recognize that it's not just, you know, the president says, do it, and it happens. There are all of these structural problems that shape policy, and then there are all of these functional issues, whether it comes to staff, resources, implementation, etc., that conspire to shape policy in ways that I think um, are much more complicated than seeing the president as, you know, the buck stops here. Right. The buck doesn't necessarily stop at the president's desk. Right. Uh, so let's also talk about foreign policy, because this is something that, in addition to just not talking about Grant's presidency in general, foreign policy is just completely gone in this era. People just focus almost exclusively on Reconstruction, but you've gone and looked at the foreign policy because you think that this makes up an important element of his presidential years. I do. As you know, as a matter of fact, Grant, who is generally regarded as one of our worst presidents, um, ironically enough, had a Secretary of State, Hamilton Fish, who was generally regarded among as among our best Secretaries of State. And in fact, um, you know, the Grant administration is able to rack up sizable um, wins um, for um, in American diplomacy, <clears throat> most notably in improving relations with Great Britain and settling longstanding issues going back to the war and then, you know, even some things before that uh, and really paving the way for the so-called special relationship between the United States and Great Britain. I don't think it's too much to say that had the Grant administration not dealt with these issues, the FDR-Churchill relationship would have been very, very different. And you're talking about, you know, 70 years later. So the Grant administration, I think, does have some signal foreign policy achievements. Uh, it also has several failures, most notably the failure to annex uh, Santo Domingo, um, today's Dominican Republic, which Grant saw as a safety valve for dealing with uh, racial tensions. He wanted to take over Santo Domingo and basically encourage uh, the United States black population to migrate there. Because he, like almost every president before him, had been looking for, was looking for, an easy fix to America's racial problems. And so if we can just send them somewhere else, everything will be fine. Right. <laughs> you know, obviously that's a, a very simplistic and, and offensive approach to these things. But, you know, it nevertheless was the approach that they that the Grand Administration chose to take. And it did have some defenders, most notably Frederick Douglass. You know, uh, supported the annexation of Santo Domingo as a 
a territory and then later as a state for uh, America's black population. So there are some successes. There are some failures. Um, but again, you know, yeah, we tend not to think much about foreign policy until we get to the Spanish-American War. And I think, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant demonstrates is the tensions with Spain had been going on for decades prior to McKinley's presidency. And you can really begin to see the outlines of that conflict in the late 1860s and early 1870s. And it's one of these things, too, that I think history in the historiography, and obviously you know this space better than I do, but people think of the United States as very much an isolationist power mm -hmm. during, or maybe not even power yet at this point, maybe emerging power. But my argument has always been that that just doesn't hold water, that from the 13 colonies even, moving west is an expansionist thing that that's not being isolationist you mentioned the activity in santo domingo but also everything that they do in central and southern america is very much a expansionist thing that the united states has never truly been isolationist and yet people like grant and similar presidents especially through the middle of the 19th century it seems to me they don't really have their foreign policy examined because of this myth of isolationism. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with that. I, I think that that's exactly right. I think that, you know, the Civil War on some level sucks the oxygen out of the room. Right, yeah. Um, you know, and the antebellum period, you know, sort of in the lead up to that, and, you know, even the Jacksonian period, we tend not to deal with the foreign policies of these uh, eras, um, you know, except in very incidental ways. You know, we tell the story in a very continental United States-centric way. And, you know, obviously there were foreign policies. You know, right now I'm working on a biography of James Buchanan. And one of the things that differentiates this biography from pre previous biographies is how situated in the foreign policy realm the story is. Because, of course, in addition to being Secretary of State, Buchanan also serves as Minister to Russia, Minister to Great Britain. Uh, he holds leadership positions in Congress uh, on the relevant foreign policy committees. So, you know, in thinking about these things, yeah, the, you know, foreign policy does play a role. And even from a domestic standpoint, you know, what the, one of the biggest political issues of the Jacksonian antebellum periods is the tariff. And the tariff is nothing if not a foreign policy issue. So, yeah, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, in writing about Grant's presidency, I wanted to bring that to the fore. I wanted, you know, people to understand that, you know, foreign policy does play an important role, even though this book is mostly about, you know, the Grant administration trying to consolidate um, the, you know, the spoils of the Civil War that had a foreign policy dimension. And it impacted uh, the foreign policies that the Grant administration chose to pursue. And one of the things though, that's interesting about it is the relationship with Great Britain, as you mentioned. Why the focus on Great Britain? Because, I mean, obviously it's, a, it's a, still a major power and arguably the world's largest empire. But it seems to me that there's so many places that you could go and talk to and have relationships with. And... and, and 
from my perspective, at least sitting up here in Canada and learning about empire history from a Canadian perspective, the possibility of war with the United States wasn't really there. So why then go into this relationship with Great Britain? Why, why that focus? That's a really good question. Um, part of it has to do with um, Great Britain's role during the Civil War. You know, the Lincoln administration had always feared that Great Britain would aid the South during the war. And in fact, uh, a coalition of British powers had uh, placed an emperor in Mexico with the idea that, you know, they would kind of take a wait and see approach to the war. And if there was an opportunity to exploit American weakness um, to establish a European foothold in Mexico and in the western part of the United States, they would do that. Uh, in addition, Great Britain had paid lip service to neutrality, but at the same time, you know, the Confederacy had bought British ships um, that they then, you know, put into combat and inflicted casualties and property damage against the Union. And because, you know, the Union ends up winning the war, you know, there was the sense that Great Britain owed uh, the United States something, hmm. uh, should indemnify them for having not really been particularly uh, uh, above board in their dealings with the Confederacy. In addition, you have a large Irish population in the United States that... Um, you know, is really antagonistic toward the British and is an important voting block. And at the same time, you also have some conflict between the United States and Canada over borders and fishing rights and, you know, all of these sorts of things. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of areas of potential and actual conflict between the United States and Great Britain and settling those issues or at least creating a framework for improving relations, I think, takes a major potential uh, enemy out of the mix. And, and how much of that, too, is being a military guy, seeing what happened in the Civil War, and coming to some sort of decision that, hey, maybe a diplomacy is a better way to go? Well, you know, I don't think that that, that Grant is a military fetishist. No. But at the same time, he believe, you know, he wants very much to invade Mexico and kick the Europeans out of Mexico because he believes that they are a threat to U.S. national interests. And in fact, Johnson tries to rid himself of General Grant um, by proposing that Grant put together a military force and go do that. And Grant actually seriously considers that idea. You know, he sees former Confederates and Union officers serving together in Mexico under the banner of the United States as a really important step toward reconciliation. It's only when he realizes that Johnson is trying to get him out of the country to weaken him politically and to um, reassert presidential control of Reconstruction that Grant ultimately demurs. But, you know, it's not for lack of faith in the mission or, you know, lack of interest in, you know, going and, you know, kicking the Europeans out of the United States. I think, nevertheless, he recognizes that a war against Great Britain is not what the United States needs in the 1860s and 1870s. And, you know, I give a lot of credit to Hamilton Fish, as Secretary of State, who manages to play off the various factions in the Republican Party against one another and craft 
a very important treaty that ultimately not only gets the United States what it wants, but improves relationships between the United States and Great Britain. And how much of that effort goes towards ultimately what the book is about in terms of preserving a legacy of the Civil War? It seems like these things actually do go hand in hand more than you might think on the surface. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the major complaint between Great Britain and the United States is, you know, these claims over the Alabama, which is one of four ships that British um, shipbuilders had made and sold to the Confederacy. So right there you have a direct connection. You know, this is a leftover legal political issue from the war that needs to be settled. Um, but on a deeper level, I think that, you know, settling the relationship between these two countries frees the Grand Administration to pursue its expansionist policy in the Caribbean, which, as we've seen, was driven at least in part by a desire to find an easy fix toward, you know, to Native American or excuse me, to uh, the black population. And, uh, you know, so there are all of these competing elements that can trace their lineage back to the Civil War mm -hmm. or to issues raised by the war. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so in general, I mean, the, the book, of course, preserving the Civil War's legacy, and you mentioned before that Ulysses S. Grant generally considered one of the poorer presidents, and I realize it's fool's goal to say, you know, good president, bad president, because a president has so much to do and is a rather complicated figure. But in general, how much do you think Ulysses S. Grant maybe is misunderstood as a president. Oh, I think he's incredibly misunderstood. Yeah. I mean, by himself, in, you know, in particular, I mean, in his final message to Congress, he apologizes for his presidency. He says, you know, <laughs> mistakes have been made, as all can see. And I mean, it's, it's shocking to think about a president of the United States telling Congress anything other than, you know, we're killing it, we're crushing right. it. Yeah. Yeah. And here's what I want to do, you know, to crush it more. Um, you know, I think that there was some fatigue with the presidency by that point. I think when he writes his memoirs, it's one of the reasons why he ultimately elects to leave the presidency out of the memoirs. And I think that, you know, as Reconstruction sort of becomes this rallying cry for Southern ethno-nationalists, you know, to point to, you know, alleged black inferiority, you know, of course, the person who's president during that is going to take a historiographical beating. And, you know, throughout the early part of the 20th century, that's what happened. You know, Grant pushed too hard. He went too far. Uh, you know, Reconstruction was a mistake. He shouldn't have done that. Conversely, when we get to the 1960s and we start seeing the scholarly consensus about Reconstruction shift toward if, you know, if there was a failure in Reconstruction, it's that it didn't go far enough. Grant is pilloried for not going far enough. Right, yeah. <laughs> should have gone farther. You know, and you add to that the fact that, you know, published, you know, the scholarly annotated published version of Grant's papers appear relatively late. Uh, you know, late 60s through the 1990s. Um, the papers of his presidency, you know, really don't appear until the late 90s. Um, you know, I think it becomes easy to sort of tell the story from other people's perspectives, you know, whether, you know, it's former Confederates or disenchanted uh, Northern Republicans, and they have a uniformly negative story to tell. It's only really as those papers become available in the last 15 to 20 years that we've begun to reassess 
Grant as president. But even today, if you pick up, you know, these incredible biographies that are coming out about Grant, whether it's Chernow's or Ron White's, you still see comparatively more space devoted to the war than you do to the presidency, even though the presidency lasts eight years and the war lasts four. Right. You know, so you got to ask yourself, you know, in terms of, you know, fidelity to Grant's life in terms of fidelity to relative importance, are we actually uh, uh, um, being serious about Grant's life? Hmm. Um, you know, certainly the fact that Grant apologized for his presidency and didn't write about it in his memoirs suggests that maybe we are, um, but I take a different perspective. Uh, and I think that we need a standalone volume in Grant's presidency for just that reason, if for no other reason than to acquaint the general public with his presidency and with this really crucial time in American political, economic, diplomatic, and social history. Yeah, and that's why everyone should go get the book. Again, it's the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, preserving the Civil War's legacy. A lot of really good stuff in there. And I know it's always dangerous to say this, but parallels to today in some ways, too. So it's not a book that's just about Reconstruction or just about the legacy of the Civil War. I think there's some really relevant things going on to, to the political, economic, social situation in the United States today. So I, that's what I, when I went through it and talking to you, I really think that it's a, a very timely book as well. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. So we encourage everyone to go get it. Paul K. Hatt, you can find him on Twitter. And one of the things, I always forget to do this at the end of shows, but Paul's a pretty good Twitter follow, I have to say. Uh, um, you're always sort of tweeting out stuff about the books, but also where you're going to be and different anecdotes and stuff. So uh, a really good follow. Is it what? What is it, Paul? Is it just Paul Cahan? Paul underscore Cahan. Paul underscore Cahan. Paul Cahan, you'll get the famous chef in Chicago. Which probably is also a good follow. Also a good follow. Yeah, <laughs> so you probably we interact. It's always a good time. Yeah, so, th so there you go. So Paul underscore Cahan, Cahan, K A H A N. So we encourage you to follow. Paul, thanks so much for the time today. Now go eat some terrible food and blow something up. Thank you very much. All right. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, historyslam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.